Hello, this is Melissa, and it is Real History on the 9th of February, 2023. And today I'm, I'm really happy to be speaking with Diana. Hello, Diana. Hello, Melissa. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. I wanted to just kind of ease into some of the meat of your story by having you talk a little bit about your long ago background, because I think this is an interesting part of who you are, are the, the choices that you made when you were fairly young. And specifically, I was thinking about what you told me about your time serving Uncle Sam. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It was, I never took it very seriously, but, um, you want me to start there? If, if, well, wherever you want to start, it, it's interesting and it is your story. It's your history, but that is an interesting. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. No, we talked about, you said you wanted to know my road to Alan Watt. And yes. I thought about it for a few days. Yeah. And I thought, well, it started when I was a kid, really. I was one of those people Alan mentioned that was just looking all the time, looking for something. Mm -hmm. And I thought back over my life, and in my early childhood, I tried to read the Bible but didn't get it. Too much symbolism. And again, in my teenage years, I was just looking for an answer. And What were um, some of the questions that you had? At that, what answers? No, no, no. Just how how does the world work, and you know what's happening here, and why is there chaos on the news? But my neighborhood seems pretty calm. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Just because things didn't seem to make sense, and so I thought, well, the Bible's supposed to have all the answers, and so I tried that, and I think I'd get through a few chapters and just kind of set it down and not go back to it because I wasn't really absorbing it, and I didn't have any you know, official, formal training in Christianity or Catholicism. My mom was a Catholic. Um, I was not baptized, so I had to kind of figure it out on my own. And but, that was not a um, big part. That wasn't something that your mother imparted to you either. That, that wasn't... did, yeah. When I was young, she sat me down. My sisters went to Bible school, and I think I went as well, but something about it didn't work for me. And I remember staying home from, from, from Bible school and um, Mom just having little sessions with me. She'd open up the Bible, and she'd teach me the Golden Rule, the Ten Commandments, uh, the the basics, you know, who Jesus was and what he did in Genesis and how the, you know, the basics. Mm -hmm. And just growing up, the rest was filled in by movies, you know, the Ten Commandments or documentaries, etc. So as a teenager, I was, you know, got to serve, wanting to search again. So I opened up the Bible again and still didn't really find anything couldn't really understand the symbolic uh, language, mystical language, I think. And um, so I just kind of dove into fiction and just loved to read, enjoy reading. And went, got through high school, did okay. Um, I lived in a small town in Iowa, population 7,000. We mm. were 
outsiders there, so I never really felt quite comfortable. My mom moved us there. Well, she got divorced when I was 11, so we moved to Iowa where her mother was. Small town, you're an outsider. You know, I made friends, of course, but it's just you never feel really quite a part of the the group. I never did, anyway. Where did Where did you move to um, Iowa from? Um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, it's where I was until I was 11. Then we went to Iowa where my mom's parents were. And the options after school, high school, would have been to work in a battery factory alongside my mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or uh, in a meat packing plant with my other two sisters, that was like an hour's drive away. And, and I didn't like either choice. And there was a recruiter at school for the military, for the Air Force. And I thought that would be really cool. You know, I could have a little adventure, have a job. You know, they would feed me, clothe me. I could go, you know, have an adventure. Not really have to deal with school and that would be my way out of that little town. And so I joined the military uh, because I already worked in a restaurant. I started working when I was 14. They let me be a, a bus girl and then a dishwasher and then a waitress and then a cook and then an assistant manager, then a manager. And here was another reason why I joined the Army was I wanted to be the manager of that place. It was already four and a half years I knew every aspect of that place. It was just a small family-owned restaurant. Actually, it was just a single guy owned it. He wasn't married. Nice man. But he looked at me, and we talked about it. He says, you know, Diana, I just can't explain to the business world handing my business over to a 17-and-a-half-year-old girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> you see, you know, I, you know, I got this other person here. They're in their 30s. They've got a family blah, 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 so I couldn't go ahead, you know, I couldn't proceed with that avenue forward. I didn't want to walk through a meatpacking plant where my sisters told me about, you know, people with boots on walking through a foot deep of blood. didn't want to go there. Um, (laughs) Get carpal tunnel syndrome because, you know, of of cutting up meat all day with the knives. Didn't want that life. Yeah, and or working in Union Carbide, you know, making batteries. My mom worked there forever. Uh, that's where she worked after she divorced. My dad moved us there. We were there for my junior high and high school years. So I joined. I went and talked to the recruiter. Well, they, I wouldn't was not good enough for the Air Force. Hmm. When I was, I think, sixteen-ish or something, I was with my friends in a car. Uh, we were cruising around town, and the police pulled us over, and apparently some of the people in the car had alcohol on their breath. I did not drink. I did not have that on my breath. I wasn't even tested, but that was like a little black mark on my file, and the Air Force didn't like that, so they said no, and I was devastated. And my mom sat down with me and said, you know, there's other options. And so I went and talked to an Army recruiter. And that had me in a, in a second. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I became a grunt. Um, I, and because I had already worked in a restaurant for four years, I thought, well, I'll become a cook. It'll be a breeze. I already know what I'm doing. You know, I'll have a little bit of 
less of a learning curve and I can deal with all the other hard stuff better, you know. Did you have that kind of say when you went to join the Army? Could you say, I want to be a cook? Or what what era was this? Was the U.S. involved in anything? uh, Oh, uh, well, in my mind, I had no idea of current affairs. I didn't watch the news. Um, I There was no war in my world, but I found out, you know, 20 years after I got out that it was actually the middle of the Cold War. Mm. So, yeah, but I had no idea. But what they do is they give you a series of tests, and then they'll, they'll rate you and say you qualify for these jobs. And I guess I only qualified for two jobs. One was a cook, which, you know, I felt happy about because I'd never thought about choosing to be a cook, but since it was there as an option, I thought, wow, what a piece of cake, right? Mm-hmm. I already know how to do it. And the other option was to be a parachute rigger. Oh. And and I think about that to this day, and I think, well, it must be my attention to detail, because I, I went skydiving years after I got out of the military, and I watched a parachute rigger rig up like four or five parachutes while I was waiting for my turn. And it's incredibly detailed and disciplined. And and I thought, I guess that's why I qualified, because I'm kind of detailed like that. I can get real anal with details. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I joined the Army. I took the cook route because the idea was a parachute rigger. You also have to jump out of a plane. And at the time, the idea of that just terrified me. I was like, I just want to get out of this small town, have a job while I'm doing it, and a little adventure. I'm not jumping out of plane. This is just a job for me. So so that's what I did. I went did uh, basic training. That was, you know, slap in the face for sure. And then AIT, which is your individual job training. I forget what that stands for. And I was a cook. And the other military people out there will be ashamed, but I have no idea what that MOS was. It was 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't know. It's a number and a letter combined together. It's, I don't know what it is. That's what the cook is in MOS? Yeah, military occupational specialist, and it, and it has codes. Uh-huh. You know, like my husband uh, was a ranger, so he was a, oh, geez, I can't even remember what that one is. He says from time to time. Anyway, yeah, it's like a 54 Charlie or a 11, Bra- 11 Bravo, I think is what a ranger is. Okay. So that's an MOS. You have, you get a code. You're coded. Mm-hmm. That's your qualifications, I guess. Um, so anyhow, I joined the army and went through that. And Were you always? Germany. Oh, Germany. Okay, cool. That was my question. All right. Yeah, I got to go to Germany for two years, a lot of fun. I was a cook. Our schedule was, you know, we'd work, we wrote, we flip-flopped back and forth, 4.30 and then 4 o'clock or 4.30, I think it was 4.30 until 11. And then the next day we'd work 11 until 7. So you'd do the morning lunch shift, the next day you would do lunch, dinner. Mm -hmm. Next day, breakfast, lunch, lunch, dinner. So you'd have one Nice afternoon off, you go out, you party, you, you screw around, you can sleep in till 10 o'clock, go to work at 11, do lunch and dinner, 
And then you can either have a quiet night and stay in because you got to get up at 3.34 in the morning or you go out and party and just don't go to sleep and just go to work <laughs> and then sleep the afternoon away, which, you know, we used to do as well. <laughs> and we were in Germany. And when we, you know, we'd go out bar hopping on the weekends or we'd go volks marching through the mountainside. Uh, we found a cave that had like a natural waterfall running through it and the I guess the locals from hundreds of years ago I'm assuming had this beautiful stone bowl carved that they put under it and so this water would fall into this huge bowl and then spill out and run down the cave while the military guys the air force guys would show up and they would rappel off the top down to the bottom it was probably a 30 or 40 foot drop down but everybody would put their beer in that <laughs> in that bowl full of icy cold natural spring water. <laughs> and we would, you know, party out there. That's what you did. So how how long were you in the military altogether? Four years. Four, Four years. years is what I signed up for, yeah. I spent two years in Germany, and then they sent me to El Paso, Texas, into the desert. Mm-hmm. And so that was nice as well. I was, except in El Paso, in Germany, I was an actual, well, no, I wasn't either. It was the, the point where the military was transitioning from military people doing the actual job to, to contracting it out to civilians. So the military, we were the managers and bosses of the civilians. So I walked into that job supervising, I don't know, maybe... 15 or 20 German civilians that, you know, and half of them were over the age of 35, and I'm 18, you know, going, okay, well, I have done management before, but, you know, I, these are, you know, this is a whole different world here. But it worked out great. They're lovely people, and, you know, I'd go out and see Germany with them. And it was nice. So during this time, you're young, you're you're in your very late teens and early 20s and you're having a good time mm -hmm. and you're partying, that kind of yearning that you had when you were a child to understand the, how the world worked, it, and, yeah. was that still there? It was. It's, it's remained through my whole life. It's still with me. Alan solved 90% of it, but a little bit to go. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in Germany, I used to... Um, I guess I started what you would call religion shopping, like Alan mentioned a long, long time ago, mm -hmm. was I thought, well, why don't I just go to some of these churches? I'm here in Europe. I mean, there's some of the oldest churches, you know, in the world, these beautiful places. I'll just go to a couple of the local Christian churches and see what happens, you know? And so I did. Um, and I just didn't see God there. I, you know, I'm looking around, seeing all the ritual and the people and, you know, it's, everybody's real nice, but it was also, I don't know, just, you just sit in an audience and you listen to a guy talk and I'm like, where's God in this? And so it kind of took me off the taste of, you know, official religion, so to speak. And so the time went by. The object of your quest from the time that you were a child 
uh, on through Alan, whatever the object of the quest was God? You know, I don't know. I was looking for answers, mm -hmm. looking for, I didn't remember a lot of my childhood that mm -hmm. confused me. Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out why is the world so confusing? Shouldn't we be a peaceful, productive, enjoyable place, you know? Even though I still had those rose-colored glasses on, that it's a Disneyland world, and I'm in the army, but, you know, we're not at war, so it's cool. I can just travel, <laughs> you know? I didn't know there was a Cold War going on. They didn't let us in on the secrets. Mm -hmm. But um, we were right there, Germany, making a line right. against Russia and the bad guy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, they're the bad guys again. Yeah, the bad guy, them over there, mm -hmm. over there. So when you got out of, um, I, I may uh, just like not take it through a, straight chronological line, but there's something else that you've mentioned yes, to me. Yes, yes, I know what you're getting at. Okay, go ahead. When I was near near the end of uh, my tour in Germany, I... No, 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 no. I had already transferred to El Paso. That's right. And I was... Because uh, the desert's a very still, calm, quiet place. And I found that I could, I could have a lot of time to think, and I would like to go out to the desert and just be. But I got introduced to Shirley MacLaine. I believe I saw her movie, and I think it was called Out on a Limb, and I was just transfixed. I was like, "Wow, maybe that's the answer." So I'll maybe interject. I'll interject here just for people because it, this is of a certain era. This is the mid '80s, and Shirley MacLaine was an actress in Hollywood and a dancer. And her real heyday would have been the 1950s, when she was a young, you know, what they'd call the ingenue, and mm -hmm. she'd had a. And a, let me interject. Mm -hmm. I list my mom and I would always watch musicals together, the ah. old musicals. So I knew Shirley MacLaine from being a dancer. So I was like, oh yeah, right on. She's mm -hmm. a good person. Right. But yeah. And, and that is actually how they do it because out on, out on a limb, Shirley MacLaine said that this was really autobiographical in nature, but on this mm -hmm. autobiographical journey, I, I've never read the book. I've only read about it, but She's taking you into a world that includes um, all of the new age concepts, reincarnation, yes. even she even yes. brought in unidentified becoming flying objects, aliens, becoming a god, yes. And her mm -hmm. thing was that you reincarnate and you keep reincarnating so that you can get it right, but that this this godhood potential is in all of us. And yes. it's, it is interesting yes. to me, too, because... Um, when we talked about this before, I'm like, okay, I, I want to look into this and see what she was pushing and how she was pushing it. And, you know, Alan always told us, you know, they give you the stars so that you follow mm -hmm. them, follow the stars mm -hmm. and whatever oh, they're yeah. popularizing. And she really was the the first that I know of, the first Hollywood. She was. Yeah. Who was saying that made it like popular? That spoke right. about it freely. I think 
I think she was on the talk shows and she would dress in that new age, not really hippie way, but just a relaxed, mm-hmm. flowy kind of, you know, clothing. And, and she just looked relaxed and cool and, you know, wow, she's got it together. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think it's any, um, accident that at the same time that that Hollywood is promoting her and and we're getting the big this see this is the very beginning of the new age and some of the things yeah. that yeah um some of the things that Alan covered like America's Sorcerers I, I I may be getting the name of that book wrong but there was a book that came out in the 80s that was warning mm-hmm. about some of the dangers of the new age and they turned that into a movie and Alan covered it a lot. He Alan talked about the new age so much in the early days of his talks. By the time he mm-hmm. got to RBN, he was he was talking about it a little bit less, but 2006, mm-hmm. 7, 8 you almost could not hear him do a uh, an interview or a talk of his own that he was not warning about this because what you've got is a Pandora's box of ideas. And and now, mm-hmm. see, we're at a point, Diana, where all of this is mainstreamed. And you, yeah. you, you can't even get, if you tell people that there might be dangers or things that they should watch out with numerology mm-hmm. or yoga or whatever they they will look at you like you're a two-headed freak. Yes. Because yes. that mm-hmm. is now the mainstream. Yeah. But so you're there you are. You you've dived off into <laughs> Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> yeah, and you know, of course I bought her book the next book, and that introduced, I think, the crystals and minerals and the laying on of hands and the Reiki, Reiki which is laying on of hands healing. And so there were healing arts, um, and I was just transfixed by crystals and the healing. And um, so that's what I went towards, and I went and bought some crystals. And by then I was getting out of the army, and I, I drove home back to Milwaukee. My family had sent, while I was in the military, they moved from Iowa back to Wisconsin, back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I went back there and, you know, I got a job in a restaurant um, and uh, dove into the new age. I thought, you know, this is what you do. You, you, you try to make yourself a better person. Um, and here's some tools, so let's see what, what happens. I didn't have much luck with churches and, and, and all that. Um, anyway, so I dove in and I remember finding a crystal store in downtown Milwaukee and walking in there and just being, oh, just, they're just, crystals themselves as rocks, they're just beautiful to me just the way the light plays off them their form their shape just 
they're beautiful. I love them. Yeah, and I was teasing you too the other day. I no. asked, I asked you to send me some pictures <laughs> that we could use, and and you sent some pictures of of plants growing on your kitchen counter, and there were some crystals in it. I'm like, and and there you said this was where the magic happens. I'll, I'll we'll get back to that later, but there's a shelf there of the crystals, and I'm like, oh, your new age, <laughs> the new age is peeking through. <laughs> it is, yeah. But crystals are very. Very lovely to look at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they have a different, a different space in my mind now. But at the time, I was taught that they had these vibrational powers, and um, went through a whole. When I went to this store, I got to the owner, and I clicked. She was a, a white woman who had been down in Mexico. She renamed herself Estrella Fuentes, which means, I think, a flaming star or something like that. That sounds right. Estrella means star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, she was a, a, a largish woman. But I think her physical prowess kind of, you know, spellbound me a little bit as well. But I just had to be a part of that environment down there I had to be in it and so I worked there I asked her for a job and I worked there part-time and so I did my regular restaurant job and did that and paid the bills and I think uh, I was uh, moved back in with my mom and I we were roommates and we sh- we'd lived together for a couple of years she had like I think we got a three or four bedroom and she took half and I took half and so we each had our space and it was really nice Anyway, um, I just dove into the New Age big time um, because that store drew to it everybody into the New Age. The Native American Indians would show up, uh, people from India, um, people from all over the world. It was quite amazing when I think back on it how cosmopolitan it was, and I I didn't know. Um, But, you know, the... We had, I remember Native Americans would come in and after the store would close at, say, I think 6 or 7, maybe 8 o'clock, then somebody might hold a class in there. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Native Americans would do a smudging ceremony or um, or they actually invited us to go do sweat lodge. So I got to do and that. And just, just in case somebody doesn't know what smudging is, I think, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that is where you would burn something like sage to clean the aura of the atmosphere? Is that smudging? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. My understanding of it is and was that somehow the smoke captures the negative particles, and once they're in the smoke and then you open your house and you blow it out and you get fresh air in again, it, it like takes away the evil spirits with mm-hmm. it. But for me, I just like how it cleanses the space because <laughs> I still do it to this day. <laughs> but it started off as a new age thing. Right. But now I consciously choose to do it, but not because it's a new age thing. It's because I like how the house smells and looks and feels when it's done. Um, anyhow, um, where was I? So getting out of the army, went back to Milwaukee. I'm working in that store and just got to be exposed to a lot of different influences, you know. 
uh, this group would come in and they're tarot card readers, or that group would come in and they're, you know, they play drums, or these people do rolfing things, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the things that I was usually drawn to were like Native American influences, because I knew I had that in my bloodline, and so I thought, why not explore it? Mm-hmm. So I did. And then that led me to, oh, geez, I'm thinking I wound up in Dallas. So the All new right, age so, just um, uh, kind of faded away for you. Yeah, well, I well, I wound up living with the owner of that store, and she would have people come over and perform these ceremonies. And I saw through her scams, and I realized, no, this is not how I want to live my life, scamming people for money. You know, and the scam was basically, oh, look at these two candles here. See how one is lower than the other in the way that it burned? That means it, you know, it, it sucked all this bad stuff out of your body. Well, after the people left, I looked up and realized it was simply the way the air conditioning vent hit that candle more than the other one. <laughs> you know, so it's just... It really, you know, was like kind of done at that point. Yeah. So I booted her out, went back to a normal job. And, you know, I don't know, five, ten years went by, just living life, working, trying to find, you know, answers where you can. And then I moved back to Dallas again, and a, and a an old neighbor was a Scientologist, came over, gave me the pitch. I wasn't really into it, but I was into him. So I followed him into Scientology mm. to realize he had a girlfriend, but by the time that happened, they already had their hooks into me. Now, one thing I should say is that in the interim, when I went back to Milwaukee as an adult and then went back to Dallas and then ran into the Scientology guy where I worked in Milwaukee, I, I had experienced a shooting. I was a manager for Blockbuster Video, mm-hmm. and a person came in and shot my security guard dead, mm. had to deal with that. And anyway, from that point on, my psyche shifted. I wasn't optimistic or bright anymore. I felt negative and, like, black. Mm-hmm. My the the images in my mind were weren't sunny and bright anymore. They were cloudy and gray and black. And I was really confused by that. So when he introduced me to Scientology and said, "Well, Scientology can help with that," because that's what they do is they pinpoint your ruin is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Find a person's ruin, and then you tell them Scientology can help with that. And so I bought some auditing, had some auditing done, and you know what? The the doom, gloom, negative went away, and I got my optimistic blue sky outlook back. Mm-hmm. So it worked on me, and mm-hmm. I was sold. Right. I was sold. I was like, wow. I had a girlfriend in Dallas who had been seeing a shrink for like, I don't know, 15 years, and she was only... 25 or 28 years old and she's cutting her arms open still and freaked out looking at these cut up arms i'm like i'm not going to shrink ever (laughs) right because and so when i was in scientology scientology hates abhors psychiatry Mm -hmm. and um and so i got to learn from scientology just how awful psychiatry is in its history 
and its makeup and its, you know, all of it. Scientology just hates psychiatry. It's an interesting somehow, thing I've, I've thought about with Scientology before. It's like as, as much as they get wrong and as much as they want their hooks in you so that you're part of their cult, the, yeah. the stance against psychiatry and psychiatric drugging is, um, it's a very it's solid, huge. well-based, it's very well-based, all of their, the yes. antagonism that yes. they feel towards psychiatry. The only, the, the, the downside of that or the, what they're offering you is they've got their hooks into you. They've got yes. all of this auditing. You could look at it as potential mm -hmm. blackmail. Yes. Oh my God. You know, oh they, they are so deep into your psyche at this point. They, they have become de facto yeah. the, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing too is that in the, the prime thing in Scientology is they feel that all the world's ills, bads, everything, this is the soul source comes from psychiatry mm -hmm. the, so they're just that's just like their thing mm -hmm. they they can't look beyond it or past it and and it and it when you see it from that bubble it makes sense you got to get out of the bubble to go oh wait a minute mm -hmm. that right yeah so anyway um but there was a part of Scientology that really fascinated me, and that was the part called the CCHR, which was the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. And they were just, um, their focus was about psychiatry and its ills and the psychiatric medications. And I really didn't understand why I was drawn to that until I met my husband about five years later. He was on those meds, and I said, well, I, I can't be with anybody that's on those meds. And he threw him in the fire right then. And I was so taken aback. I felt responsible. I mean, I, I liked him a lot. I loved him. I, I thought. I wasn't sure yet. But I was like, wow. And so we went through six years of withdrawal from that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, stuff's bad news, the psychiatric and medications. your husband had been an army ranger. He also had some, possibly some PTSD. Yeah, he... Yeah, he had some big PTSD and was misdiagnosed, told that he had, you know, a mental, what do they call that? Instability, I forget what it's called. Emotional. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, a chemical imbalance in the brain. That's mm -hmm. what they call it. Chemical okay. imbalance. Which I was given the same diagnosis once for having migraines. And they gave me Zoloft, and I remember I took it for two days. Or, and I, but the second or third day, I noticed in the morning, usually when I wake up, my brain's very active, and I start thinking, what am I going to do for the day? What am I going to wear? What do I want for breakfast? You just start battle planning your day out. Mm -hmm. And by the third day, I realized I had been awake for two hours before I started thinking about anything at all realizing I needed to be to work in like, I don't know, an hour. And I had all these things. I, I was just woke up and sat there in my pajamas staring at the TV. And I, and I, and when I, it hit me right then on that, that third morning, oh my God, it stole my mind. And mm. I threw them in the toilet. Mm. 
and never took another one again. My husband, unfortunately, didn't get that lucky. Right. He was, uh, and, and yeah, and so Scientology taught me about all of that, the psychiatric medication, the industry itself, its history, whatever. Okay. And, um... So what's next? Well, you had at this at this point you had your you you've convinced your boyfriend who's going to become your husband that oh, he can't right. be on psychiatric medication. Yeah, yeah. You're still so actively we involved through. in Scientology. I was um, because I had I had when I, I dove in had had first once it helped me with that awful, you know, incident that I had and restored my optimism, I thought, oh, I'm just going to become a staff member because I want this stuff for free. You get free services when you're a staff member. <laughs> well, I didn't realize that I would be working six and a half days a week, um, have a half a day a week off and make $12 a week um, and live with strangers in terrible accommodations um, but it's for know, a good cause, right? Decent. <laughs> right? Well, it's just, it's to save my soul for eternity, right, don't right. you know? Yeah. You know, but I still stayed at the lower levels, the lower levels. You know, you're staff. You need to do all these courses to learn how to be a, a staff member first and learn your job. And so basically I have to read and take examinations and do clay demonstrations. I'm basically an encyclopedia of 10 books, huge books, before I can ever get to the kind of auditing and tra you know, training that I want, which would be the deeper stuff, you know, the mm -hmm. stuff that makes you immortal, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but I realized after uh, something inside of me was pushing back and, and it was saying, no, this isn't right. This doesn't work. This isn't I'm not going to be a slave here to these people for, you know, because it's a good idea to them. I have, you know, bills out there that still aren't being paid. we got a car. I want to go back to living my life. So I'll get out of being a staff member and I'll, I'll be a regular person and do Scientology on the side. And they call it a field staff member. But you're basically a slave anyway to your work outside, and any penny that you make winds up getting sucked into Scientology again. Because if you don't go to their events, if you don't buy books, if you don't upgrade the training that you got three years ago with the new book that they decided you need to reread again before you can, and pay for it again, mm -hmm. even though you want to do something else, it's... You're really just jerked around for your money. Mm -hmm. And so I, I figured that out. I met my husband. I was still trying to do the, the thing, be a good Scientologist. And he kind of woke me up to, you know, because they're like, I loved him. It was, a, I, I, there was just no question. And the big wall that I hit with them was you do not get to tell me who I can love. And I remember saying this to the Scientology person that was telling me I was all wrong. I said, only God can tell me who I love. I don't get to choose who I fall in love with. God makes that choice. And you don't get to tell me 
No. You don't get to choose some, some <laughs> what I would now say a loser Scientologist as my husband. I mm-hmm. want, man, God chose this man for me, and I have to honor that. And so that's where my split came in. Mm. I just said, okay, that's enough. And that was, I met him in 2004. Uh, He threw away his psychiatric meds, and because I had spent two or three years studying about it, I I could cope with what he was going through. And on top of it, I I will give Scientology credit again. The communication courses that they put me through helped me to deal with his withdrawal. Mm-hmm. You know, they teach you bull baiting. They teach you, you know, how to communicate and get your point across without being a bully. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? You mm-hmm. just it's like Alan says is repetition over and over and over and over. And so Because we they're training you six... to be a good recruiter. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're training you yeah, to be a good auditor, Mm -hmm. you know, to listen to somebody else. And, you know, I don't know what they did with that stuff at the higher levels. I'm sure it was used for blackmail. I'm sure it was used to sort out who has an evil heart and who doesn't, who can be manipulated, who doesn't, who's got money, who doesn't. Because when you're in those sessions, they can really move you anywhere they want. Mm -hmm. You know, they... Yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into that. And I didn't get the real deep, deep, deep stuff, thank goodness. I just got the, the shit. You know, I wound up spending most of my time in classes and classes and classes and classes and mm-hmm. classes. And, you know, I'm like, enough. I want to learn what I want to learn, not what you want me to learn. I'm tired of this encyclopedia of administrative shit. I don't. I'm done. So... Anyway, how so. how did you go from a low level Scientology grunt to mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. Alan Watts talks? Well, um, I got to a point where, and this usually happens, you get to a point in your life where things are going smoothly, things are calm, your mind is more restful, and you think, well, hey, why don't I dive into that? you know, that project I've always wanted to do or whatever. But for me, it's always been, I fall back on, all right, let's try and figure out what's going on in the world again. So you turn the news on, or that's what I did, and tried to watch it for weeks and weeks on end, and let me look up this conflict and that conflict, and how does this work and how does that work, and just getting lost and confused and saying, I know I'm not stupid, I've read all these books. I can, you know, I'm, I have an intellect. Why don't I get this? And so I thought, well, let me go into the world of documentaries. Maybe there's something in there. And at the time, it was what 2006, 2007. The financial crash is about to happen, and I wound up running across uh, Alex Jones documentary. I don't even remember which one it was. And that led me to an Alan Rousseau one, which involved like a Rockefeller thing. Uh, that led me back to another Alex Jones, which I think was, was an end game. I forget. But I thought, okay, well, let me check out this guy's show. So I would, I'd 
go to work and put it on and listen to him in the background yelling and ranting and raving and I'm like I'm appreciating the information but god the circus is just draining I'm like good lord and anyhow uh, Alan Watt came on his show and started talking about this deep 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 stuff and he was so calm and just knew what he was saying and it's it, it's like you know truth when you hear it Yes. And it just resonated with me. And I was like, I got to find out what this guy is all about. This feels right. I could listen to him. And so I found the show, and I think I turned down, like, the current one. Whatever. I don't even know the topic of the day. And his vocabulary was way, way, way over my head. What is socioeconomic and... You know, I knew what totalitarianism meant. I had read 1984, and I had read a few, you know, books of some substance. But, oh, my God, he's just going on. I have to know what he is saying. I I just had this itch. I had this scratch. And Alan was, oh, he was taking care of that itch, I'll tell you. I was like, (laughs) wow. And so I thought, well, and when Faith said this, when you interviewed her, I went, all the way back to the very beginning. And I saw how many shows there were, and I was like, wow, okay. Well, let me start with the video, and Alan recommends that that's where you start. So I did reality check. And the funny thing and is... And I watched it. Okay, re- I, you no. stay at reality check, but the funny thing is, is that... Faith found Alan's talks a bit later than you did. So you're right there. It's 2007, 6, 7, maybe. And there are already all of those talks there. Mm -hmm. You know, there was already a ton of stuff for you to choose from. And and he had been. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just realized it was February of 2007, about the same time of the month that is right now. Oh, unbelievable. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So um, anyway, I watched Reality Check. And I have to tell you, for two weeks after that, I remember watching it alone because I thought, I don't want to be distracted. I waited for my husband to work a graveyard shift and so I watched it at night. And I literally, after watching that documentary, felt like the floor and the ground was no longer solid i felt like the walls were they moved the walls were no longer solid they kind of warped a little bit i thought i was in the twilight zone i mean my sense of reality was so shifted i saw it in the physical structures around me i could I didn't feel like I was walking on stable ground. Mm-hmm. And and I moved very carefully during those. <laughs> I, and I, I think I watched it a second time, maybe a couple, three days later, just to, did I really grasp it? You know, I, I mean, you know, he totally deprogrammed me completely. The funny, the funny thing about Reality Check 1, that's what you're talking about. When you get to Reality yeah. Check 2, Reality Check 2, he put some music in there and some graphics, and so it's a little bit more visually engaging. But Reality Check 1, 
I yeah. was telling someone uh, about it recently, and I said, it's just Alan sitting on a couch, smoking and talking. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what he says is so amazing. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, my physical world was changed. I guess it was in my psyche, but I experienced it visually. Mm-hmm. And I could feel it, you know, in the how the floor felt. It was just, just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Um, and so after that, I had such a voracious appetite. I went back to the very beginning, listened to, I think it starts in 2004, maybe. I, I didn't find any of the 1999 stuff you guys refer to, just 04 on. And I had a 45-minute commute to work. So I would listen to one show down and one show back up, so two shows a day. But sometimes if my drive, you know, the traffic was excess, you know, it was an hour, hour 15, I could sometimes throw a third show in there, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm doing it all chronologically. So in one week, I could get through, what is that, 14, anywhere from 14 to 21 shows in a week, mm-hmm. just devouring it up. And, and when I get to work, at the time, I was able to have a job where I worked in an office, and the office was incredibly slow. It was for an auto repair shop. So I, I was the girl that drove you home or picked you up, you know, and did the books. But there's a lot of dead time. So I was able to look up the articles and read them with Alan. Or um, if I didn't know what this word meant or that word meant, pause, Wikipedia, <laughs> Webster's, you know. Um, and so I just gave myself an education through his talk. And... um so that went on for about six months, and I noticed that there was an area for transcription. And I looked, and I was like, well, but there's, they're incomplete. There's, they kind of stopped at that point, I think. or mm-hmm. I don't remember. I was just appalled that they weren't up to date. Yeah. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I was just appalled. <laughs> And so I think I sent a, an email to Alan. In, in that six months, I think I called him once or twice, and uh, I don't even really remember what we talked about except that he said to me that his path was not the same as mine, and so that, no, I did not have to do a radio show and tell people and talk to people unless I felt that was my calling. I did not. So I was so relieved. I, I thought, God, that's what they all do, don't they? When you wake up, you you got to tell the world. Yeah. You have to, you know, disseminate it. Scientology taught me that. You got to throw it out there to as many people as you can. And, and Alan assured me that no, now that's not everyone's path. And I was, I was relieved. And, and yeah, I don't remember the other particulars. They were just surface level things. But also during that time, I was so awakened psychically. I literally, and, and so many things were falling into the place that first, I guess, six months or a year. And I would, I would go back and remember an experience in corporate America from 20 years prior going, Oh my God, that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. And for all those years, I had no idea. It was just this mystery, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I had those moments like every other day, just things were clicking and clicking 
and the and things were just weaving together this blanket, this mosaic of how the world works, and it's not Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And so I went through a terrible morning. I remember being sad and on the edge of tears for almost two years, mourning Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to call it, that illusion that we're given, you know, of America and the Founding Fathers, and just because I was just absorbing so much data. And so on top of it, I have my stepson here, who's a little boy, and I'm tutoring him. But when he's reading or doing work and my husband's sleeping because he worked graveyard shift, I'm devouring papers, white papers and articles and PDFs that Alan's got posted. And, you know, so it's the the 14 to 21 shows per week on my drive, plus the reading and the printing of the articles at work. And then on the weekends, any spare second I had, I had to be reading and devouring this. And I kept thinking... It's too much. You're not going to absorb it. But the other part of me said, no, you're fine. Your subconscious will retain it. You need the repetition. You need as much of the true data to override and overwrite the crap. And so I just kept devouring and devouring and devouring. It was crazy. Um, and anyway, so yeah, I noticed that the, the transcription stopped after a while. I was so appalled, and I wrote Alan an email. I said, would you mind if I do these? He's like, no, do one. Let's give it a try, see how it takes. And my first one took 10 hours, you know, and I typed it by hand. I had taken uh, typing in high school, three semesters, so I was a very good typist. I had just never had a use for it until now. And I thought, wow, that's why God had me do that. Because he <laughs> wants me to do this. You know, it's just I had this nagging in my stomach that I had to do this. And so I sent it back to Alan and he said, yeah, this is great. Continue on. And so I did. And so I got my speed from 10 hours per strand. And that was when the shows were 45-minute shows. Mm-hmm. Got it done to like eight hours. I did that for like, I don't know, maybe three or five years. And my arms and my neck were starting to bother me. And at the time, they started advertising the Dragon software. And I thought, you know, I know Alan, you know, he, 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 he warns us against software and apps and convenience. I said, but man, I need some help here. And so I bought it and used it. And it, it sped me up to, it took, it was like 25% faster. Mm-hmm. And it and but the big thing was taking the stress off my arms and my wrists and my and my whatever. Um, but here's the thing: is when you do a transcript, you're I'm not just listening to it in my car, right? I come home because I only worked a half a day. I would come home, sit down, and do the transcript. So it's a 45 minute show. It takes an hour for each 15 minutes. So it'd take three hours to finish it, and then another hour to edit it, and then I'd be good, and I'd be awesome. I got that day show done, but I could only do three per week, and I think someone else jumped in and helped for a while. But yeah, I, I. Well, I just, I, there I, even. Go ahead. No, sorry. I just want to say there even came a point after about a year and a half. My my husband never liked me doing them, and it, and it wasn't so much about the information. 
It was about the fact that I was not getting paid, number one. And number two, that it was, I was interacting with a strange man, mm-hmm. which I understand. I love that my husband's a caveman <laughs> and doesn't want me, you know, having this really, you know, and I really didn't because I didn't really chat with Alan too much. You know, maybe a question here or there through email. I was satisfied uh, knowing I was connected to him in this way. That I could hear his voice every day. He could be my 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 tutor, my mentor, my trainer, my teacher. I don't know what to call him. Um, but I um, oh, and I forgot. Let me back up. In the the first few months after the walls stopped moving and the floor settled down, I could literally have hours long conversations with Alan in my head, <laughs> and I could hear him clear as day. And I, and I would have conversations like, well, is that what was going on with this corporate thing? And, blah, 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 blah. and he would never give me the answer, but he would guide me. And I'm like, I, I was like, am I going crazy? And so that was one of the phone calls I had with Alan. And he's like, no, you're just manifesting it in the way that you're manifesting it. And your mind is sorting it out. And so... <laughs> Well, I I wanted to um, because we're we're actually headed to a, just at the hour yeah. mark here, but I wanted to paint a visual image for the listeners because we're doing and Weston is very helpful in this. You you've sent me images. You sent me a picture of your desk where the computer is, and oh, you said yeah. this. You said this is where the magic happens. Yeah, and yeah. then That's you where sent I got my education. Yes, you sent me pictures you, because you have, and I'll, um, we'll get back to how many and how long you've done. But I want le- oh, to let yeah. people know that this, that these talks are put up in audio form, but they're also on the Alan Watt CTTM YouTube and BitChute channels, and you can see visual, either the images, the still images. And so you can see Diana's workspace. You can also see what she has done is printed out every single one of Alan Watts' talks. So they're in paper form, and at the moment, she's got them in banker's boxes. But yeah. you can, what yeah. it does is it gives the listeners a visual of the amount of work that has that you have put into preserving Alan's words in this way, and you it's also, just, I, and I'm still obsessed. You you it. also are the one that had the idea for the transcript booklets that we now offer as basically as cheaply as we yeah. can. You said that you had that you wanted to see them in a in an actual booklet form. So we had to buy yeah, a, a yeah. special little stapler that that allows yeah. us to turn them into a book. But you said the time will come when we won't have the internet, when people can't just go online and get what they want whenever they want. And maybe even having this information um, is criminal. You know, it's it, you're not allowed to yeah. have it anymore. Yeah. You can just have this booklet and fold it up in your pocket. But... Because well, I, it was funny, yeah. After well, I, Alan died. Well, okay, hold the thought. After Alan died, but okay. I because I want to toot your horn for you before no. we run out of time. I want to say that the work <laughs> you 
there are, there have been other transcribers. There have been translators. There have been people who volunteered to translate Alan's talks into Russian and German and Spanish and Italian and Norwegian and Finnish and on and on. Mm-hmm. But, and there have been people who did the transcripts in English. And there, yeah. there, there are some people who said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do all of, um, Alan's interviews with Neil Foster, for example, so that those exist there. But you have mm-hmm. done the bulk of the transcribing, and yeah. you have you just finished up the the last ones of Alan's what I call the year of COVID, when the talks went from an mm. hour to two hours to three, four, five hours. These were taking mm-hmm. you. Even with the Dragon software, this was such a massive undertaking. Oh, so I, I just had so much anxiety <laughs> about those shows. But what <laughs> I, what I'm trying so to say hard. to cut to the chase is that you have dedicated 16 years of your life to preserving yeah. Alan's work in this way, and I I am so blown away by your commitment. I'm, I I mean, it is a beautiful and amazing thing that you've done to preserve his work in a form that people can read it. Yeah. Well, I have to be honest. There was a, it's not me. It's, it's God wants me to do it. It's a compulsion. I'm compelled yeah, there was a point in the in the first year my husband threw a fit, and I also got paranoid, thinking, "Oh my God, the feds or whoever the bad guys are going to come and get me and kill me, and six people's lives are at risk because of what I'm doing," you know. And, and so I wrote Alan this big long letter explaining I had to stop, and he understood, and it was no big deal. And and so I think three months went by, and every single minute of every single day that I did not get a transcript done I felt it gnawing away at me just my stomach I had this rock and my just wouldn't let me go it didn't matter it wasn't me you know I you know my fears overcame me and I you know wimped out and backed away and whatever but I realized no this is this you know God had me take those typing lessons at the time for a reason and he, it's just gnawing away at me. This is my purpose. I don't do the radio show. I'm not going to do this massive amount of research and stuff. I mean, I did for myself, for my own understanding, but um, that was my piece of the pie. You know, I think back on World War II and what did the women do at that time? Well, they typed. They moved around information mm-hmm. secretly. I'm going to put it, I wanted to tell you too, that I am putting in an, an Irish folk song. I think Mm. it's, it's called Song of the Book. Our soul again. Or Song of the oh, Books, yeah. maybe that is what it is. Yeah. Because I was thinking, you know, transcriber to transcribe. It comes from the scribe 
Um, uh-huh. and yeah. often the, yeah. the job of the scribe is, is taking, to do exactly what you've done. Someone is delivering yeah. an important speech and you have taken that information and, and transcribed it, put it pen to paper it's or just, hand to typewriter. Yeah. It had to be in physical form. It just, it has to be in physical form. It can't just be audio out in the ether on the internet. It just, it has to be in physical form. And That's I just, all it's, I know. You're, you're right. <laughs> and, and other people feel that way. I know a woman who, um, now she does, I don't know what she's done in terms of actually printing them out. But I do know that she has downloaded every single one of Alan's talks and she wears them mm-hmm. like a, a necklace or a talisman or whatever, but they're on a USB stick oh, wow. that she wears around her neck. <laughs> okay. And I know I heard not that long ago from a gentleman who said that he and his son, they also have a library where they've been collecting the books because that was one of the images that you sent me were the, some of the books that you've been collecting that Alan talked about. And this man said that he and his son were very um, involved in Mm -hmm. printing out all of the transcripts too, so that they can have that collection. So, uh, and, and I will say another thing too, is that Weston, there was a, a fellow from the States that, that helped a lot with the website up until 2013. And then between 2013 and 2015, a little less. And he wasn't really doing, he wasn't able to take the transcripts and get them up very regularly. And uh-huh. I would, yeah, 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 I was trying to do it at that time. And then Alan became ill and I was learning how to do the audio stuff. So it was just too much. And Weston yeah. said, it's very important that that all of these transcripts, because what happens when you deliver the transcript is yeah, that you gotta it's go got to be co- it it's got to you have to go over it, you have to listen to it, you have to go over it for typos and that kind of thing. But you also it has to be coded with the HTML. I'm sure you know if it was a WordPress site, there'd be easier ways. But you know it's labor intensive. But he's really mm-hmm. since yeah, he's been yeah. here helping out a lot more of your transcripts have gone online. And so that's very heartening. It's a good thing to see. But I I interrupted you before we wrap up. I had interrupted you when you were saying after Alan died. Oh, um, well, and I'm just going to say, I don't care what people think, but (laughs) I saw Alan. I, I felt like he came and he just stood right here next to me at my desk. And he was showing me a, a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and he folded it in half. Mm. And, and he said, here's the book. And he said, now look what I can do with the book. And then he folded it again the same length. So it's like two inches wide, you know. And, and he said, look, I can slide it up my sleeve. I can tuck it in my boot. I can put it in the back of my pants. I can fold it in half again and put it in my pocket. He said it needs to be able to be concealed. And you I never said, okay. told me that, Diana. You never told me that he came and showed you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess because I'm always afraid people are going to think I'm crazy. Ah, well. So, but yeah, from time to time I see spirits, and that's just the way it is. Anyway. Um, 
I try not to to interact and deal with that because um, a lot of bad ones sneak in there. So mm-hmm. I just kind of keep a a bubble of nothing, no spirits at all, and I say the only ones allowed in are ones that bring love. So that's God, Jesus, you know, good angel from time to time, and and evidently Alan. <laughs> Alan Watt got in, yeah. Uh, so. Well, I tell you what, it sounds like we might have more to talk about another hour. Oh, sure. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I wanted to go ahead and I'm really excited that you did this talk with me. And also, thank you. I have to say that, um, that Diana, I have called you, besides calling you the transcriber, I have called you the, um, <laughs> the angel from the West Coast. And, yeah. oh, and there's, uh, oh, I, I, okay, sweet. so this show's gonna run longer because I just have to say, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again another hour at some time mm-hmm. and then we can talk about the spirits that you see, but we'll also talk about <gasps> the gardening. <laughs> Oh and right, ma- yeah. yeah. Because, and maybe I'll save uh, some of those images. But what what you've done, um, I think, in a way to kind of help yourself heal from Alan's death, and mm-hmm. because when when someone that you have invested as much time as you did with Alan's work, you you, you obviously felt his passing tremendously. It- he was like a sec- he was a father. I feel like I, I like I said I never really spoke with him except two or three times and emails, simple questions. But I, yeah, it, he was a, a very strong male archetypal symbol figure in my life. I was really taken aback when he was gone. So yeah, I can't even imagine what you went through, but. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you've done besides besides pouring um, a tremendous amount of energy into finishing the transcript project, which you did complete, God bless you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you you began to turn some of your attention into gardening, and I think that that was a a beautiful thing to yeah. take. You know, it's new; things grow, and you can see that. For those of us, I'm going to make. I my, have that. I'm going to make myself cry here. I don't want to do that, but, but mm-hmm. life continues. You know, it's like you lose, mm-hmm. you lose, Alan, and life continues, and we we make it the best we can. And I think the gardening has been a very yeah. well, thing. and it's vegetable gardening, so I get to eat it. It's not just flowers, and it's lovely, and it's pretty. It's nourishing me. Mm-hmm. It's nourishing us, and. And I was compelled for this again, so it's like God's next thing for me. Uh, who knows, in five years, maybe I'll have a huge organic garden. Who knows? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, we know that part of the agenda is we are supposed to starve, you know. Those of us that they don't yeah. just kill outright, yeah. you know, it's like, let's bring the famine on and make sure, you know, the there is another... Um, mm-hmm plant in New Zealand that evidently lost 75,000 chickens and there's a, a another oh one God. in the state. Yeah. So, I mean, this, 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 uh, yeah. agenda of, of starvation and privation is definitely upon us. Um, I don't want to end Yeah. Up- and you know, what's funny 
is God had me be a cook in the military, remember? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did was I fed people. And I feel like I'm about to do that again. Isn't that yeah. interesting? That is interesting. That is. Yeah. Well, Diana. I'm like, why am I obsessing on this? But anyway. <laughs> well, it's obvious. And I know that listeners are going to see the work that you did on the transcripts. They'll look at all of these boxes, the, the, and I wanted those pictures. I wanted you to go out into the shed and open oh up the, open up the attic of the shed so that people could see all those boxes and then take a couple down. I know that was work, but I wanted people to see yeah. the kind of now, work. Now keep in mind, yeah, keep in mind that that is the transcript of the show. And then I also printed if he referred to an whatever article he linked, I would open it up and print the story page. And so that is with it as well because I I thought this is a time capsule. It is. And for anyone going through this, they need to see what the headlines were for the day. And it, you know, they see on the bottom that the date that I printed it, maybe it was 3 days or 4 days after Alan talked about it, but you know, so, well, I, yeah, and, and these I things are also being I'm handing it down to, but I don't even know where it's going to wind up, but I just know it needs to exist. Well, so. and these things are being memory hold, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I printed out every PDF, every, every, everything. It's, yeah, I would need a whole room to put it on display. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I want yeah. to say, Good night to you and the listeners and to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of Real History. And I'm thank you. I'm really enjoying doing this series. And Diana, I thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. And I I, I there's another hour in here for sure, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> okay, good. All right. All right. Well thank you. Thank you. Take it away. And I've got something.